Be with us, Lord, we pray, as we read your word and seek your face, so that we might know your truth and delight to do your will. Lift up our heads that the King of glory may come in. And who is this King of glory? He who is righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. He is the King of glory. Amen. Flash mobs and processions of protest or celebration are quite the thing these days. If you have a popular cause, a Twitter account, a sympathetic media looking for a story, then you can generate what might seem like a spontaneous and genuine uprising of the people. It's attractive because it looks like grassroots democracy. It signals virtue because it claims to give a voice to the oppressed and the marginalised. And it may even seem powerful because loud chanted slogans are always more compelling than reasoned rational debate. And I mention this because today is Palm Sunday. And in the mind of many, Palm Sunday is an obvious day to hold a rally or a march, a procession for a cause. And in capital cities throughout Australia for many years now, that's exactly what's been happening. And today is no exception. In the past, marches have been for peace. Most of today's marches, however, are about refugees, climate change and social justice. Now, whatever you might think of these marches, my point is not that they're either good or misguided. My point is that they misuse the biblical story and give it a meaning that was never intended. For Jesus is not a moral or political crusader. He seeks not to advance any cause but God's. And as he processes into Jerusalem, he doesn't do so in a historical vacuum. It's not coincidental, for example, that he chooses to ride upon a colt that the people should declare his praises from Psalm 118 and lay down palm fronds in his path is not a random and spontaneous act. Behind all that Jesus is doing here, there is a history and a purpose. And very briefly, the history is as follows. When God's people entered the Promised Land, one of the celebrations that they commemorated every year was the Feast of Tabernacles. And that feast, we read from Leviticus, they would take branches from luxurious trees, from palms, willows and other leafy trees, and they would rejoice before the Lord their God. With intertwined branches, they built temporary booths or tabernacles, and they sheltered in them for seven days. It was to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come. And it served as a reminder to Israel that the Lord God had brought them out of Egypt and into the land of promise. And though there is no clear evidence that the feast was regularly kept during the reign of Israel's kings, there is strong evidence that it was revived after the exile. And it continued to be a popular feast, particularly for Jews visiting Jerusalem from the diaspora, from the regions beyond Judea. The feast happened over a week, and during the week, there were recitations of the covenant provisions and promises made at Mount Sinai. 
And there was rejoicing for divine blessings, represented by the bounty of the year's harvest. If we move fast forward to 165 BC, there we find a group of Jewish rebel warriors called the Maccabeans. And by acts of guerrilla warfare, they took control of Judea from the Seleucid Greeks. Now the Greeks had profaned the Jewish religion and defiled the temple. And thus we read in the Jewish historical account of two Maccabees, we read this. It happened that on the same day on which the sanctuary had been profaned by the foreigners, the purification of the sanctuary took place. And they celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering how not long before, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals, therefore bearing ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches, and also fronds of palm, they offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success in the purifying of his own holy place. They decreed by public ordinance and vote that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. And thus they did. But right through to Jesus' day and until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And if we rewind again to the time when the exiles returned from their captivity in Babylon, and just prior to the rebuilding of the temple, we read Zechariah's prophecy. He speaks of God's promise to bless Jerusalem and to punish Israel's enemies. And to accomplish his purposes, God promises to send a messianic king to Zion a king righteous and victorious, a king who will proclaim peace, not just to Jerusalem, but to the nations, a king whose rule will extend to the ends of the earth, a king who redeems by the blood of God's covenant. And when that king comes into Jerusalem to set the captives free, God's people will sing from Psalm 118, with shouts of joy and victory, they'll resound in the tents of the righteous, and they shall proclaim to the coming king, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Now that's a short historical background to what's happening on this day, which we call Palm Sunday. The day when Jesus enters Jerusalem in the week leading up to his crucifixion. How much of that background story you may already be aware of, I really don't know. But I'm very sure that the crowd of disciples, and most certainly the Pharisees, knew that history exceedingly well. They knew exactly what Jesus was doing and what he was saying. And up until now, though Jesus certainly hadn't shied away from upsetting the Pharisees, he had avoided provoking them to act against him directly. But now, well, he's in their face. 
As king, he accepts the praises of all who welcome him in the name of the Lord. As saviour, he comes to bring redemption by the blood of God's covenant. As priest, he cleanses God's temple of those who have made it a den of thieves. And as prophet, he fulfills the word of the Lord in Zechariah. Have a look at verse 30 in Luke's Gospel. Jesus says to two disciples, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now that's not the random decision of an itinerant preacher. Jesus hasn't unexpectedly gathered a crowd for a spontaneous procession and protest. What Jesus has done is deliberate and purposeful. And it didn't just occur to him as he came down the Mount of Olives. Three times in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus says that he's going to Jerusalem where he would be put to death and rise again on the third day. And to emphasise his determination, Luke says in chapter 9, he says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is a man on a mission. So the purposeful entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, riding on a colt, is his way of saying that the Messiah King, spoken of by the prophets, well, he's now arrived. And that he should arrive on a colt is not especially unusual. Now, certainly Roman generals and Caesars, they didn't ride on cults, particularly in victory processions. But the kings of Israel certainly did, for their kingship was effectively a vice-regency, a rule that recognised that God alone was their true king and that they were his servants called to serve his people. And thus Jesus came into Jerusalem certainly righteous and victorious, but also lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. As the servant king, he didn't come to overthrow armies, but he did come to lay down his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He did come to cleanse the temple and open up a way to God. As the psalm says to us in verse 27, he comes with the people, bows in hand, joining in the festal procession, up to the horns of the altar. This is not just about Jesus entering into Jerusalem. This is about Jesus reenacting the cleansing of the temple. And it prefigures what he will do later in the week. For later in the week, he will offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. For all the sins that defile us and separate us from a holy God. Later in the week at his death, the curtain of the temple will be torn in two. And access to God will be restored. Not in a purified and earthly temple, but in a pure and perfect temple that is Christ's body. 
For Christ himself is not only God's Messiah King, who will one day rule in righteousness from the seat of David's eternal throne, he is also the Saviour and High Priest. He is both the offering and the one who offers the one perfect sacrifice of himself to God. And as the people proclaim from Psalm 118 the coming of their King, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, they recognise him also as the stone which the builders rejected. The very stone that's become the chief cornerstone in this new and living temple. And just as the people, and even the dead stones of Jerusalem and its temple, could not help but cry out, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, so too do you and I, as living stones, built into a temple of the Spirit, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we proclaim what the Lord has done for us. And what the Lord has done for us, he first did for his people Israel. He came to his own in Jerusalem, but his own did not receive him. And far from turning his back on Jerusalem, he wept over the city. Have a look from verse 41. If only they had known on this day what would bring them peace. But now it is hidden from their eyes. And the thing is that Jesus' lament over Jerusalem well, it's not just an expression of his love for Israel. It is also an expression of his love for us all. For as Zechariah tells us, his proclamation is peace to the nations. His rule is from sea to sea. And because of the blood of his covenant, he proclaims freedom for the imprisoned and hope for the oppressed. And that's not a promise just for the needy people in first century Jerusalem. That that's a promise for all. That that's a promise for you and I. That's a promise for the poor in spirit, for those who are slaves to sin, for those who long to see God with a pure heart, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. And though Christ came to his own, and so many did not receive him, as many as did receive him, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. Children born, not of any natural descent, not because of any human merit or decision, but children born of God, children born from above, children born again. And so, as we come to this last week leading up to Easter, I want to to encourage you to reflect. Reflect on why it is that we call Jesus King, Messiah, Saviour and High Priest. Reflect on what it is that makes Friday to be good and Sunday to be better. Reflect on why it is that righteous and victorious does only come with humility and lowliness. 
reflect on why it is that the true king is also the true servant. Reflect on why it is that the high priest of God is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Reflect on why it is that we have a greater and more perfect tabernacle that cleanses our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we might serve the living God. And reflect on why it is that the King of Kings weeps when we fail to see what brings us true peace. And as we do, then we too shall cry out, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And if we keep quiet, then even the stones themselves will cry out, The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand we join the festal procession. For he is our God and we will give thanks. He is our God and we will exalt him. We give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Amen.